0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. BC, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. Uh, Especially a warm welcome to anyone who's visiting with us. Uh, And on top of that, an especially warmer welcome um, to have the Karas's with us. What a joy to see what God is doing in the north, and to know that that is the same God at work among us here a little bit further south. Well, we're glad to have you this morning uh, to jump in with us uh, in our journey through the book of James, uh, where we're looking at what life looks like uh, for James and for us lived in submission to the throne and in gratitude for the cross. We're learning what it looks like to follow Jesus in this series that we've been calling a theology for life. Because according to James, theology, our understanding of God and the things of God is best worked out and meant to be worked into the fabric of our lives, which is what the book of James is all about. Whether that's with respect to our experience of pain and the questions it raises or with respect to how we engage God's Word and the answers it provides, or as we're going to see today, with respect to mercy and the way we live it out. That's what we're going to be looking at today, the place of mercy in the life of the believer. And with that, I'd invite you to turn, if you have a Bible, to where we left off in James chapter 2. And you can follow along with me as I read from verse 1 to 13. Again, James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. This is God's word. It says this. My brothers, show no partiality Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery but do not murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would be over our time today as we Dive into your word. And I ask you to speak through James even as you have already spoken. I pray that you would, through your word, teach us where we need to be taught, reprove us where we need to be reproved, correct where we need to be corrected, and train us in the way of righteousness to ever more closely resemble the image of your merciful Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. We well, may have heard of the man who arrived at the pearly gates to find a line and overheard as the line progressed forward that at the front of this line was St. Peter asking people what their denomination was. So, if someone would come up, he'd say, Denomination. The first one he heard was Methodist. So, St. Peter looks down at his list and he says, Room 24, but be very quiet as you pass Room 8. So, the next guy comes up, same thing. St. Peter says, Denomination, this time it's a Presbyterian. Room 19, but be very quiet. As you pass room eight. And the next one, this guy finally comes up to the front of the line, and Saint Peter once again asks his question: denomination? To which this guy replies, Lutheran. St. Peter looks down his list. Room 13. Be very quiet. I know, I know, as I pass room eight. I, I get to some degree, the guy says, why? I have to, you know, you're splitting up the denominations. I can understand that. We never really got along down there. Why would we get along down here? But I cannot understand for the life of me why we have to be quiet while we pass by room eight. To which St. Peter says, well, the Baptists are in roommate, and they think they're the only ones here. And yet, and yet behind it all is the sad truth that we actually do this ourselves. We we divide up and, and set our own standards for who gets where and who gets closest and who gets in and who doesn't, don't we? We we do this ourselves. We slide the scale to fit our own ends of what it takes to get even right with God. And not just out of some naive respect for denominations, but because we functionally hold people to different standards. Which is what James is addressing in our passage today, how we hold people to different standards that we devise for ourselves and then treat those people accordingly. It's something much more significant than you may have thought before. Something much more important. And yet, with James, what I wanna look at with you today through this lens, is why such partiality, as James calls it, it's partiality, why such partiality in the here and now and the implications it carries for where we're going, why it's wrong, why it matters, and why you should care. Why it's wrong, why it matters, and why you should care. First, why it's wrong. And here we're just picking up in verse one where James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. And it's actually even a little stronger than than we can make out in the English. It's not, it's not as you hold the faith, show no partiality. It's actually hold the faith by showing no partiality. This is actually how you do it. He says, show no partiality, why? For if a man, he says, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, James says, and a poor man, right, in the shabby clothing, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the ones that sit up front, sit by me, come over, I'm like with you in this, and you say then to the guy in shabby clothing, get lost, He says this in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Show no partiality. Why? Because in doing so, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And I just want to consider this line a little bit more in depth of what James is saying here. See, the word here, where he says making distinctions, it's interesting, because when we read this, I think it's pretty easy to assume that James is talking about the distinctions that we sometimes make between, say, the rich and the poor, as James points out in this context, that those are the, Distinction. I don't think that's what he's saying, though. I think that what he's saying that is that the distinction between the rich and the poor, the, the, the divisions we set out, the scales that we put in place, is actually the symptom of something different, something much deeper. Because though on a first read-through, it seems like James is saying something like that. And there's certainly a sense in which we're meant to walk away with that, that he brings up this example for the reason that, that he certainly doesn't want us to judge people in this particular way. The real thrust of what he's saying, though, cuts harder at the heart. See, the word here that's translated, have you not made distinctions, it's one word, is a word James has already used, actually twice. Back in chapter 1, Verse six. Back in chapter one, verse six, where James said, let the, the one who asks God for wisdom ask in faith with no doubting. That's this word, with, without making distinctions. Let him ask in faith without making distinctions. For the one who doubts or makes distinctions, the one who doubts or makes distinctions is like a wave of the sea, James says, that is driven and tossed by the wind. And that person must not suppose that they're going to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because that person made distinctions between one man and another? No. This isn't about that. But about making distinctions between when and when not this guy's willing to live under God. It's much more significant. When and when not, this guy is willing to live under God. That that back in chapter one, this guy who who James sort of sets up, this archetypal guy, when he was willing to live under God when asking for wisdom. That, That he does. He trusts enough to know that he's got to go to the source. But in the end, He's unwilling to live under God when God decides to answer his prayers. And if you were here, you may remember why. Because we learned in chapter one that God answers our requests for wisdom by putting us through the ringer. And some, some have enough faith to ask the question but not enough faith to receive the answer. They make distinctions. So too, when it comes to showing partiality, James says, "We do we not make distinctions? Wavering within ourselves, which is a better way to, to translate this, to say it, than among ourselves. Because it's not like this was a debate going on in the early church. You think we should be a beamer church or a beater church? Because you know there are a lot of beater church around here, but we should be the beamer church, reach that niche of society. We should be the BMW church. This is not a a discussion that was going on, but it is very much something that everyone who has walked and followed Jesus has wrestled with within their own hearts. You make distinctions within yourselves of when and when not to follow God, to allow God to be God, or when you decide to take his place. No, we waver within ourselves. It's an internal, an internal thing that, that mostly has to do with making a distinction about how we judge everyone else on a different standard than we judge ourselves. That's the distinction. That I'm willing to live under the mercy of God, but I want everybody else to live under something else. Because we're very unwilling to extend that mercy to anyone else. This is who we are. And instead, I judge everyone else based on what they can do for me, or what I can get out of them, or at least, the very least, based on what opportunities. They may open up, or on the other side of that, you got favoritism on the one side, on the other side of that, discrimination, what having them around might cost me. So we make a distinction and judge everyone else by a different standard. Do you hear what he's saying? It was interesting a few weeks ago, Kath and I and the kids were down in Cincinnati. We spent a uh, uh, some time, Kath was off. Um, at some seminars. Uh, We spent some time running around the city, the kids and I, and one of the things we did was we jumped on the electric trolley that goes around the downtown area of Cincinnati. Now, Kath and I are used to big cities, right? Chicago is like the small end of what I grew up with, right? So we're used to big cities, Cincinnati isn't that big. So basically this trolley will take you in front of every important building that Cincinnati has, which is about three buildings. The the fun one the fun one though the one that intrigued me the most though was the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is right there in downtown Cincinnati, and 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 it's interesting it's the site of some historical stuff at least that happened close by there Um, the court systems in Cincinnati are 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 um, are have some, some history to them. It's interesting stuff. It's the one circuit court that's been turned down more than any other when it, when their decisions reached the Supreme Court. But what intrigued me the most was that as we're trolleying our way past this building, plastered, inscribed on the side of it are these words that said that the people might be governed by the law and not by man. Interesting, right? On the side of this Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, that the the courtroom stands to protect the people from being governed by man that they might instead be governed by the law. A law that is hopefully fair and well-founded. Which makes it a very similar statement to what James is saying here. Because the moment we stop living under God and, God willing, God's law, and decide to live only for ourselves and take on ourselves the responsibility of wielding the gavel. We always do so, as James says, as judges with evil thoughts. Not first and foremost because we make distinctions between rich and poor. But because we're driven to that having first made a distinction to judge others by a standard we would never want to be judged by ourselves. All because we're not willing to extend to them the standard by which we God hope that we'll be judged by the mercy that God's extended to us. Why? Because while mercy is a, a benefit, we can't live without extending it to others has the potential of costing us dearly. Brothers, sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith. Hold the faith by showing no partiality. Yet as much as that makes sense in a world that knows nothing of mercy to withhold what's been extended to us. Where where certain people, wherever they go, they're going to be the ones who receive special treatment. And others are going to be the ones who, who will be rejected no matter what. That's what our society does. It makes no sense in here. It makes no sense for us where the very lifeblood that courses through our veins, our communal veins, is not our own, but a blood that was shed for us by another on the cross of Calvary. So to show partiality and make distinctions based on, on anything other than the blood of Christ That this is how you get right with God and the only way you get right with God and it's transforming work in the life of the believer is wrong because it is proof positive that we are working with a double standard. Living under mercy ourselves while not willing to extend that mercy to others. Why it's wrong. Second, Why it matters. And here we're picking up in verse 5 where James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Has not God chosen them? And I I think the poor here are are more general than just the the, the poor. Uh, James is constantly playing with these categories. But he is picking up on this category and saying, in this one instance, the the symptom of of, of a a much bigger sickness, this one symptom, he's saying, has not God chosen what you yourselves are rejecting based purely on what they can do for you? Has not God chosen them? Because they've got nothing. This is James' point, even from as far back as chapter one. They've got nothing, and that they therefore are dependent on God for everything. Has God not chosen them? Which is a much smaller barrier, right, than living with everything, thinking that you're not dependent on God for, for anything, and yet still able to recognize. It's a hard barrier to get over for someone. Who is in that situation? That they're still dependent on God for everything that matters has not, James says. God chosen them, and and yet you're rejecting them. But James says you have dishonored the poor man. And furthermore, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Is it not the powerful, the politicians, the celebrities? Everybody opens their mouth when they finally have a platform and degrades the God we live under. The rich and the famous, not all the time, maybe, not without exception, yes, but the majority of the time, and they're the ones, James says, who drag you into court, which is ironic, right? Because here the whole thing started with you judging wrongly with evil intent. And the very ones that you're pedestaling are the ones that drag you back to the court of man. It's ironic, right? But now, James says, are they not the ones who blaspheme also the honorable name by which you are called? And yet these are the ones we constantly pander to. Just think about it in your own life. Some go grunge, total rejection of the popularity culture we live in. But most of us, we at least want a little bit to be recognized as somewhat cool, somewhat likable, somewhat relevant. Don't we? These are the ones we pander to with all of our energy spent trying to be cool, be relevant, and be liked, only to be dragged through the muck and ultimately left for dead. That's what culture has done to the church. Left it for dead. Just look at church history. Just look at how every story ends when the church or some faction of the church tries to get cozy with culture. Look at all the caskets of, of liberal church in America. You can't, but Catherine and I lived among the caskets of the UK, where 150 church buildings in our, in our little city center, and five of them were still used as churches, Apartment buildings, that was a good end. The ones that were renamed as nightclubs like soul or sin, those were the ones that really had a a harsh end. And yet this is what happens. This is what happens when the church gets cozy with culture. Like a Like a victim, though, of abuse, we constantly go back to the abuser. Constantly pulled back into the relationship until it's too late. Some of the saddest stories I know, when a a woman particularly is caught up in an, an abusive relationship with a man who doesn't love her, doesn't lead her, and yet she constantly goes back that's us. That's us. But the point here is this, that having made the distinction to live not under God, but rather under ourselves, to create the standard by which we will judge all. The point is this, that because we're we're, we're, we're willing to accept mercy for us but not extend it to others, and thus we show partiality by setting another bar for, for those around us or, or for even our own community, that it's for the, the rich and the famous or the white middle class republicans for those who who can somehow scratch our back when we scratch theirs, that that, that the point is this, that in doing so, we've just undermined the very story we supposedly are a part of. Not only have we we stepped into God's place to judge others, but we've stepped out of the mercy by which we want to be... We want to be judged ourselves by. And it matters because of what it says about God and about what it says to those we're setting the bar for. That God must not be the God of mercy we thought he was. Because that's not how his people live. And that to be a part of this people, you'd better be able to bring something to the table. That you've got to pay your dues and do your time and you better be able to prove yourself before you're really invited in and accepted. Which is a problem for those who can't. Why? Because they're just going to hang their heads and walk away. It's also a problem, though, for those who can who show up with the money bags and are accepted right away because they're gonna hold their heads high and never know any better. And yet this isn't some high school popularity contest. That's not the faith we're a part of. This isn't like picking teams at recess. You know, where you go around and you you go down the line and you take first dibs on the ones who are going to best round out the squad. So all that's left, right, is the kid with the broken leg and a 13-year-old chubby me. Never got picked for anything. This isn't like that. It's about being on a team with Benny the Jet. Remember Benny the Jet? Who remembers Benny the Jet? It's like being on a team with Benny the Jet, right? From the Sandlot, you know, where, where you had kids like Squints and Ham and, and yeah, yeah, and Smalls, who didn't deserve to be anywhere near a baseball field. And yet, on a team with Benny the Jet, they're able to even beat the Little League Tigers and take them down. Why? Because Benny the Jet could play all by himself. And that's what we're invited to, not where we got to pick squads and, and, and make the team the best and got to look down the line and say, he'd be really good if he came to Christ. God could really use that guy. Yeah, he could, just like he could use anybody, but that's not really the point. God's got Jesus. He doesn't need anybody else on the team. Everybody else just gets to hang on and enjoy the win afterwards. matters. And it matters if if we're undermining the story of which we're supposedly a part. The, The faith that we're supposedly hanging on to because we're ultimately undermining the one the story is about. It matters. Why it's wrong. Why it matters. And second, why you should care. Third, why you should care. Because showing partiality, or slipping into partiality, whether through discrimination or favoritism, the negative or the positive, setting up some standard which others can have or can get the right to to get right with God, apart from the, the, the mercy of the cross, sets you up for the same thing. This is what James is saying. If you slip into this, or if if this is where you're at, you don't know the mercy of Christ. That you don't know. And he calls into question even whether you're living under that mercy yourself. And here, I just want to wrap up with verses 8 to 13, where James begins by saying, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And here, I take this to mean, if you offer others under the royal law, under the law of King Jesus... If you offer others the same standard by which you are supposedly holding on to yourself. A law of mercy. James says, then you are doing well. That's the heart of this. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder you have become a transgressor of the law. And likewise, if you fail, by implication, likewise, if you fail to love your neighbor as yourself, again, which is essentially about holding them to the same grace-based, mercy-filled standard that you hold yourself to or hope to be held to, which is our hope of having the law fulfilled on our behalf, if you fail to do that, you become accountable for the rest. That James says, you therefore do not hold the faith. You have lost hold. You have rejected the one escape clause written into the fine print of it. Because you place your faith in a grace-based, mercy-filled law for all as declared by the law giver. You won't do it. Maybe for me, but not for them. Maybe for me and those closest to me, but not for them. Why would I allow God to extend his mercy to anyone I don't think deserves it? leaves you accountable for the very law that you've just written the escape clause out of. And yet the warning, the warning is an invitation, which is where James ends. When he says in verse 12, so speak and so act, James says, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, who doesn't live the life of mercy, whose whose MO isn't to extend mercy to any and everyone as long as they come to the foot of the cross. But, Mercy, thank God, triumphs over judgment. Why it's wrong, why it matters, and why you should care about whether or not partiality is a part of your life. Because it's mercy that's supposed to be at the heart of the life of the believer. This is what it means to do the word of God and not just be a hearer only when only concerned for yourself, rather one who, like the law, is for everyone. Let me simply leave you with a challenge and a comfort. First, the challenge. That if you find yourself slipping into this, be wary. Be wary of where that comes from. Be wary of where that's rooted. If you find yourself slipping into this, showing partiality for some over others, for yourself over everyone, for yourself over even God, playing favorites or discriminating against others. You ought to take a long, hard look at your life and ask whether you know mercy. Do you know mercy? Turn back to mercy. Turn back to Jesus. That is the challenge. And that if you know mercy, it will seep out of your pores and will extend to all around you. Take a hard look at life. And don't get comfortable sitting in the judge's chair thinking the gavel is yours to wield. But submit yourself to the grace-based, mercy-filled standard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the challenge. This is the comfort that we do indeed, though, on that. Serve a God who is merciful, who has made a way, a way that that, that we could not make for ourselves, that didn't cost us a thing and was not dependent in the slightest on what we bring to the table. Even while it cost him, his son, cost his son his life, to make it possible. And be comforted that the story we're a part of is one in which we're invited to sit under a better judge than we could ever be. Where in the end, mercy does triumph over judgment. In Jesus, My prayer is that it would ever be the story we tell with our lips, with our lives, and the invitation that we extend to everyone around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that it would be. I ask that we would be a church. The life of our church would be one marked by mercy. The life of us as individuals would be a life marked by mercy, by, by caring for those who cannot do anything for us in return, that, that, that we would do it and get into the filth of people's lives and be willing to go the distance and, and, and sacrifice all on behalf of this better story.